Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And today we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you have a copy of the Bible, of the Scriptures, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you don't, we'll have those words on the screen for you. We'd love to give you a Bible and a modern English translation on your way out of your very own. So today's part of 1 Peter is talking about something that that song was just singing about. And it's this horrible (laughs) trade-off, this horrible trade-off that you have to make. To lay it all down at the feet of Jesus means that you could live a life that really had peace. I'm just saying, you lay down your worries, your cares, your pain. To lay them down would be to like live without them. To live a life of peace and joy. But to do that, you have to admit that Jesus really is like in charge. Like if you call your dad to come in and like fix a situation, he might fix it, but he's also going to be like the dad in the situation. Like you're not in charge anymore. There's a horrible trade-off that's taking place. You do have to give him everything, including your own sense of like your self-importance, your own sense of your self-reliance. It's a humility that's required for that kind of peace. That's a hard, that's a hard trade. I don't know if you can admit to yourself just how hard that is, but it's true. Today's text talks about another hard trade that we all know that you have to make. If you want to experience the joy of really loving somebody, you have to commit to that person. Shoot, you know, like expletive, right? Like, <laughs> I, I want to have fun with people and have them be like wonderful and reliable and not really require much of me. Right? Like, why don't I get that deal? Where is that? Where is a friendship that's sort of like no strings attached, unless, of course, I need a string, and then they're very much attached. But if they need a string, like, beep, you know, like, you don't need them anymore. They don't have to require anything. But we all know that's just, that's not how love works. If you want the one, you have to give the other. If you want the love, you have to give the commitment. Sometimes you get kind of boxed into these situations because of just kind of how you're born or commitments you make. You, you get married to somebody. You are now committed to that person. And at first, you're, you're thrilled because you're so happy about that person. But over the course of time, you realize, of course, they're people. People are difficult. Maybe you come out the other side of that where committing to that person means that you do find that there's so much love that's there, even when you know, all the shiny has kind of worn off. You feel that with your family. Ah, you don't get to choose them. And every Thanksgiving and Christmas, like, here we go again. And yet, being committed to them, there is a point at which. That's just what love requires. What I'm thinking about today in the text, he's talking about how we are kind of put together in the church. And if I'm thinking about that, one of the relationships that pops into my head is the relationship to your in-laws. Relationship to your in-laws is terrible. The camera's on. Uh, 
except for my in-laws. My in-laws are so understanding and patient. But most of the time, your relationship to your in-laws are only... What do you have in common? You both are connected to a person that you like very much. And, And that's it. That's the only thing you have in common. And in fact, it's the only thing you have in common, and you're kind of fighting over it a little bit. Like, I don't know, I want her hanging out with me. I don't need her hanging out with you. So, like, you're, you're a threat. And yet, because you just sort of find yourself in this committed relationship to these people, over time, you give it a decade, put a little work in, and you know it's not as bad as it used to be. Maybe it kind of comes to a place where you feel very connected to these people. You know, they cried when you, you had a baby. They, they were there when you had this emergency. Eventually, like, you start to find that, wow, you got another set of parents. You got another layer of emergency contacts. You, you know, your kids have another set of grandparents. Through the commitment, you find something wonderful, even if you didn't expect to. And today what he's talking about is the kind of relationship that you're expected to invest in in the church that I think most of us are allergic to because it's a relationship that requires commitment. As all love does, it's a relationship that requires putting some roots down and taking some time. Let's see what he says. 1 Peter chapter 3 starts in verse 8 by saying, Finally, all of you... Now, if you're just getting into this, you don't want to just start with like... People have this bad habit of just reading the Bible and just taking whatever verses and reading it and then being like, okay, I read the Bible today, as opposed to, uh, what did I just read? What does that mean? Where is it coming from? When he says finally, he's talking about what he's already talked about. Well, he's been talking about what we talked about last week, this concept of submission to authority. Right? Okay, preached on it last week. We're not going to spend too much time on it today, but he talked about submission to governing authorities. He talked about submission to sort of like economic authority, whether you're like a slave with a master or just a person who works with a boss. And then he talked about submission within marriages, how the wife is to submit to the husband. Again, we talked about it last week, so we don't have to talk about it today. Uh, This concept is hard for us, but is biblical and honestly is one that we stand up and approve of, we trust God with. Then, though, rather than talking about segments of the people, he puts everybody together. He says, finally, all of you in this same subheading of the way that we live together, understanding that, they're, that, that you're not the center of the universe, you are not the king, but you have a king. So the concept of submission applies to you. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, we probably need to be taking bigger bites out of 1 Peter to go faster and kind of get through the book, but I couldn't get past this section. There's so much here. 
And in this section, he begins that first sentence talking about how we are supposed to be with each other. There's a command there to get cozy with other Christians, that there is a unity and a life in unity that you're supposed to have with other believers. And he gives us these sort of categories for it. He begins with a unity of mind. Now, when we talk about membership, I think that's probably one of the best spots to understand what we mean by unity of mind. If you've been coming to Hope Church for any period of time, this will be like the day we talk about that word, membership. You don't really hear it that often. That's why David can make that joke about it. If you're not sure if you're a member of Hope Church or not, that's because we don't, do, we don't talk about it a lot. It's not really as important as coming to Christ. So we want to emphasize what's most important. And yet, that doesn't make it unimportant. The idea that you have a unity of mind with the people that you're in a church with. What we mean by that is a couple of things. One is that we, we have a same understanding of what a Christian is. That you would say, yes, I'm a Christian, and I'm a Christian based on a biblical definition of what a Christian is. Let's just be real. There's lots of people in the world who claim that label of Christian, and they have radically different ideas of what it means. Well, they can't all be right. We can all be wrong, but we can't all be right if we believe different things about what that label means. So it's a unity first in understanding that to be a Christian is just to be a broken person who believes there's a holy God who's made a way for you to be forgiven of your sin through Jesus by trusting in Jesus. Doesn't seem extremely complicated, but, but it is specific. Do you have a unity of mind with us in what it is to be a Christian? Then, do you have a unity of mind with us about what it is that a Christian does, that a church does? You know, there's lots of people that I think are going to heaven that probably shouldn't go to church here. We, we disagree about some stuff. That would mean they would have a hard time going to church here long term. That matters. Doesn't mean that I don't love them. I love them like crazy, but they don't go to church here. And third, do you have a unity of mind on the mission of this church? So you could be totally in agreement with us about how we do baptism and the Lord's Supper and leadership structures and yada, yada. But this church is pursuing God's mission for this church. It's still make disciples, but it's make disciples with kind of our history and our gift set and our opportunity set. Are you committed to the leadership and the vision of this church? If so, okay. <laughs> now we're ready to really talk about that concept of membership. Having a unity of mind is essential. But then he goes further, and he talks about having a sympathy towards one another. As you, as you commit, then you start spending some time together, and the Christian is supposed to start having some of the same emotions. You're supposed to rejoice with those that rejoice. You're supposed to weep with those that weep. That's not just a command for actions. It's an assumption that loving each other, you begin to feel with each other. That that person's trial does become your trial in the same way that your child's trial becomes your trial. That person's triumph becomes your triumph in the same way that that kid, your kids, A, on the report card, they don't even do that anymore. It's like numbers or something, whatever. Your, your kid's, you know, plus sign or whatever on their paper is your plus sign. You begin to feel together. You have a sympathy together that, that looks like what he calls here a brotherly love. 
And over time, it emerges into something we would call a brotherly love. Now, Peter, when he uses that word brotherly, is talking about a sibling-type love that we all understand as a concept. It's a good analogy. But it's also, according to our faith, actual. I'm not your physical brother. Well, I have two brothers that might be in the room. But other than those people, I'm not your genetic or adopted brother. But in Christ, I am your adopted brother. It's a real statement of our relationship. That is how we're connected to one another. When he uses brotherly love, though, as we try to access, okay, well, what does it actually mean to live that way? What should I expect that relationship to look like? It is helpful to look at people who are real brothers and sisters. Like I said, I have two brothers, genetic brothers, that go to this church, weird as that may seem. Many of you maybe know them, and it's great. It means that whatever else goes down, there should be at least two guys that have my back. You know, I say should be. You know, there's always a dot, dot. There's always a probably, you know, but but I love them and I trust them. And whether I totally screw up everything and I get kicked out, they still share a last name with me. We're still brothers. There is a rock bottom connection. Do you understand that he's saying that about you in the church? And that's categorically true about capital C Church, Christians throughout the ages and throughout the world. But it needs to be practically true about you and a local church. Obviously, we're hoping it's this one. But it's got to be true about you somewhere. It's so true that Jesus talks about in Mark, he says the same thing in Matthew, but he talks about how you are connected to the body of Christ in the same way that you would be connected to the people who are your, you know, physical siblings. Jesus says in Mark 10, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. You hear a promise like that and you think heaven. And he stops you and he says, Now, in this time, And you're like, oh, okay, you mean like blessing now in this time and in the time to come, a hundredfold of those things. No, 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 now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, because there's a part of you that still wants to mean he means heaven. He's talking about heaven. No, he's talking about right now with persecutions and later in the age to come, eternal life. I think he's going out of his way to make his point really stinking clear because we need to understand. If it got to a point where your your physical sibling had a kid with leukemia and the bills just kept stacking up, you would take a second mortgage. You'd sell a car. You'd do whatever it took. Why? Because kind of, your stuff is still his stuff. Because you're one. Do you understand that he's saying the exact same thing about the church? You see it in this beautiful place in the early part of Acts where the church just is selling everything they have. And you're like, ooh, communism. No, 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 charity. (laughs) They make it real clear in that crazy story where those two people got killed. It was yours. You didn't have to sell it. And when you sold it, you didn't have to give everything, but you chose to. 
That's what they were doing. They were choosing to give, to sell and to give out of their joy and out of their commitment to each other. Being part of a church, he's talking about that kind of brotherly love. But if that is to exist, you can't forget the last piece. And Jesus has it in his teaching. He says, and in the age to come, eternal life. And then he continues, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter, he's talking about this brotherly love, this sympathy, unity of mind. But then he says, and a humble mind. That's, that's hard. That's the trade-off. That's difficult. Do you understand that as soon as you start walking with other people, you know, you have the first part of that. You know, the, the fairy tale ends with the happily ever after and the prince and the princess are in the carriage together and they're being pulled away and then the screen goes to black in the shape of a heart. Bing, you know, and like, ha. Ah. You, you become part of the church and you start walking with these people and you get their phone numbers and you go to a game night and somebody comes to your kid's soccer game. And, but then what happens? As soon as you're shoulder to shoulder with these people, there's a little part of your heart, or maybe not so little, that starts to say, okay, but who's doing better? I know we're all Christians, but who's like more? I mean, I know we're all doing this together and that we're all one and that we're all broken people, but like, but really though, but who's the greatest? Do you know how I know that you do that? It's just human. It's a sign of your brokenness. And the Bible says we're all so broken. See, in Jesus' disciples, (laughs) they argued with each other about who was the greatest. Take a second. Jesus' disciples argued with each other, I think, on multiple occasions about who was the greatest. How thick-headed do you have to be to walk around with Jesus Christ and have this idea that somehow you being nicer than Peter has any effect in God's assessment of who you are. Jesus, perfection is right next to you. The increment of righteousness difference between maybe you and the next guy, you think that that means anything? The most fun thing to watch on YouTube is any kind of professional taking on a normal person and like revealing partway through that they were a pro the whole time. Yesterday, this wasn't even part of the sermon, it's just... Me clicking on stuff because the algorithm has figured me out. There was a a video on NBA professionals against normal people. And it's just clip after clip after clip after clip of just NBA pros against like mere mortals. And there's just one and it's uh, Stephen Curry and he's come dribbling down and he goes, boop. Just that. But he does it quick enough and he does it with, you know, all the right nuance and, you know, he's a genius or whatever. And the guy's like, and just falls down and Stephen like looks at him and then just banks the three. No questions asked. You are not a good basketball player compared with an NBA player. Why would these guys care about who the greatest is when they're standing next to Jesus Christ? Because it's what we do. 
They still wanted to make who they are about how good they are and how impressive they are because then they could have pride and they could stand up as an equal. Do you see how wicked that is? Do you see how common that is? Do you start to understand how much havoc that will wreak in a community trying to live together? Oh, Peter's clear. We've got to have a humble mind. You've got to do that by going low with other people, not trying to put them under you. And then Peter continues, and he starts talking about what the psalm talks about. And so the rest of this passage, Peter gives us this one next verse, or two verses, and then he starts quoting from this psalm. And in both places, it starts talking about something that you don't expect. I don't expect it to start talking about. As soon as he continues, he doesn't then say, about, here's what you do with your money, or here's what you do with your time. He immediately focuses in on what you do with your tongue. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Why would he immediately focus in on the way that we talk to each other or talk about each other in our own minds? Reviling, what does that mean? It's abusive talk, it's insulting talk, it's speaking evil. And you have some general category for what that is. Whatever, whatever comes to your mind when somebody says the word slander or somebody says the word gossip, that's a word that you know and it has some sort of resonance in your own head. But when he's talking here about the way that you talk about each other and the way that that destroys each other, I think we can get really specific. The Bible talks about it in all kinds of places, but one book just I'm reading this week for a whole different thing, but it's not a Christian book. It's just this stuff is obvious. This guy named John Gottman, he did this marriage research in Seattle. And it's good stuff. I think it's helpful stuff, but it's also not from a Christian perspective. I think some of this stuff is just so obvious. You don't need the Holy Spirit to guide you supernaturally. You can just see it if you look clearly at other people's lives. He'll look at somebody's argument in their marriage, and then he's got his formula for if the presence of these things are there in that argument, then he is sure within a 92% accuracy if that marriage is going to end in divorce or go the distance. The things he looks for in the way that they talk to each other in an argument. So, you know, you can argue. You're supposed to. You have a disagreement. You need to talk about that disagreement. But there's a good and bad ways to do that. And, and if in an argument he sees these four things, well, it's not good. First, he talks about criticism. And he differentiates the idea of a criticism from a complaint. A complaint is that you didn't do this or you did do this. Here's a specific thing. And this specific thing made me feel this way. And feeling this way, I, I need you to actually do things differently. And then the other person can come back at you and you can argue about it and come to a, an understanding of what should have happened. But it's specific. Instead, there's criticism. Criticism means the person. It's not just what they did or didn't do. It's them. You always. Why are you so? What's wrong with you? 
The reason I say this, and I say it with some level of specificity, is that if you're going to live in community with other people, you have to be smart about the way that relationship works out. You have to gain skill in the way that you're going to speak to one another in the ways you are not going to speak to one another. We read books on marriage and children. We don't read books on friendship. But a committed relationship that leads to and and bursts out with love is going to require some of the same skill sets. He says, don't revile, but instead bless. When you're going to sharpen iron against iron with one another, you have to keep it more specific. You can't let it get so critical. Leading to, along with his second thing, contempt. In his wording, a sense of superiority over another person. What did we just talk about for minutes and minutes? Who's the greatest? Where does that impetus, where does that impulse come from? It comes from a desire to say superior, inferior. It comes from contempt. And if you allow that, if you you don't fight that, that long-simmering negative idea, you go into these other two, he talks about defensiveness. The problem isn't me, it's you. So whatever you come at me with, here's an opportunity for me to, in fact, tell you what's wrong with you. And then he ends with stonewalling. You just disengage from the confrontation. And you're like, oh, they argue less. Well, (laughs) in a way, they're, they're disengaged, not just from the argument, but from the marriage. Let me ask you, around this room, who are you loving well? Who are you feeling some criticism towards that's maybe bleeding into some contempt towards? If you're around long enough, if you've got enough responsibility here that you start interacting with people, how how are you doing when it comes to that superiority thing? Are you getting a little defensive? Who have you just stonewalled? Can't do it. Can't do it won't do it. We're going to keep fighting this because that's what God in his kindness has declared for his church. That's what we trust is this good work that he's begun and going to lead all the way through. It says in 1 Peter, as he continues, he goes into this psalm. So he gives us these commands about not reviling, but instead blessing. So it's not just I'm going to stop from the reviling, but instead I'm going to see my brothers and sisters and I'm going to bless them. In my heart, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enlarge them. I'm going to make them greater and me less. Fear of man's a thing. There's all kinds of ways this even breaks down. But, but to bless them. And he continues, and he talks about from this psalm, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now you read this and you go, okay. So he's given us all this perceptive idea about how a community works, and then he gives into this psalm, which really just sounds a lot like religion. It just then ends up with him just saying, be nice and God will bless you. Be bad and uh uh-oh. It sounds like what we as a church actually kind of uh, preach against, which is 
Do you stand before God because you're good or what we call the gospel? Do you stand before God because Jesus is good and he's given his goodness to you that on the cross he paid the debt of your sin and then gave you his righteousness? So what do we do with this psalm? Well, you know a little bit more about it. This psalm was written by a guy named David, who was a king in the Old Testament. But his, his road to going from a shepherd to a king was a rocky one. And when he wrote this psalm, it was one of the rockier spots. He wrote it after the king at the time, a guy named Saul, who was a little nutty, tried to kill him. He had been anointed king over Israel, and yet the current king tried to kill him. And he goes away, he runs away. And he tries to get out of Israel and find the only other place he can go. And for some reason, he goes to the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were a neighboring nation that had warred a, a great deal with Israel. And David, a great warrior, had actually been pretty successful in often a bunch of the Philistines. So why he decided to go there? <laughs> I don't know, proximity? I don't know. But he goes and he shows up in the court of one of the kings of the Philistines. And they start talking around about him and about the song that they used to sing in Israel, about the, the ten thousands of the Philistines that David used to kill. So he realizes that he's not going to get a great reception in this court, and he has to think fast. So what he decides to do is what we would all do. He pretends to be crazy. <laughs> he starts letting the spit run down his face, and he goes up to the doorpost and starts carving signs in him. And you're like, why would he carve signs in the doorpost? Exactly. There's not a why. That's why it looked crazy. And he thought, okay, if I act crazy enough, maybe they'll just send me away. And you know what? It worked. The king of the Gath, the Akish, the king there in Gath, he just said, well, do I need another crazy person? Get this guy out of here. And so they do. They let him go. And he writes this psalm of praise to God. Now, if you put all of that background into this psalm, a background that Peter would have known that a lot of his Jewish readers would have known, and that we have access to because we have a Bible. You realize that he's saying that God loves you and keeps you. He delivers you. Even while you live the insane life of an exile. And as soon as I say that, I hope that you remember some of the stuff we've talked about in Peter to this point. The whole letter is being written to the elect exiles. We're living in a world that's not our home. How much more should we cling to each other? What David's talking about is that God, he is going to rescue you. You seek peace, you pursue it, you know him, you love him, and he is, he's watching over you, he's keeping you. And how do we know that? Well, he's proved it in the most extreme way possible. What we're about to do now is the Lord's Supper. It's the way that we picture and remember Jesus dying for us. How do we know, even if we have to be humbled? How do we know, even if we have a crazy king? How do we know that he's going to deliver us? You read this stuff and you say, well, I'm not righteous, so he's not going to do good to me. Careful. The gospel message is that Christ has made you righteous. That something happens when you trust in Him, even in your sin, even in your pride. When you trust in Him, He gives a new spirit in you and He begins to change you. 
He declares you righteous, and then he starts building in you actual righteousness, such that who's the greatest, Peter and Paul, uh, Peter and John, by the time the New Testament is written, become the guys who are writing books like Peter and John. This morning, I want you to take a moment and self-assess. First, from the message, what does it mean to actually connect to a group of believers, and how are you doing? Whether you are formerly a member of Hope Church or not, how are you connecting to the other people here? Are you blessing or reviling? Do you find in your heart contempt, a sense of superiority, or are you slowly gaining humility? Ask and answer those questions. And two, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, we often get really heavy and serious about the Lord's Supper because the Bible's clear about who can and can't have it, and we want to make that, that warning known to you. This is a supper that is for people who have accepted the spiritual reality of salvation through Jesus. We would ask you not to take the Lord's Supper if that's not you. You've not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Or you have, but you have a totally different idea of who that is than we do. If, though, that is you, you've accepted Christ as your Savior, then this morning, this supper is for you. Take time to remember and to repent, to bring stuff before your Lord. And then when you're ready to come up and get these elements, and we're going to take them together. And like I said, we're always so focused on the heavy piece of this, and the gospel's heavy, but the gospel's also good news. The first miracle Jesus ever did was to turn water into wine at a wedding. And the, the Bible's very clear in John that, that that miracle wasn't just impressive, it was a sign, a sign of who Jesus is, that he is the master of the feast of a wedding that is to come. This morning, when we take this cracker and we drink this grape juice, we're remembering that what Jesus did on the cross is making a way for us to have a seat at the wedding feast of the Lamb forever. Amen. And it will be a wedding feast, uh-oh, that includes these other people. So this morning, let's, let's take a moment. Let's get ourselves into a serious and right understanding of these things. And then let's take these elements and work on changing together. I'm going to pray for us. You're going to have a moment while they play to think, repent, get your heart ready. And then when you're ready, I want you to go ahead and just stand up and come and get your elements and go back to your seat and hang on to them. When uh, they stop playing, I'm going to lead you through taking the elements together, and then we'll stand and sing. Okay? So please bow your heads and let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, please lead us to prepare our hearts well. You are good. And these, these things are true because you're so gracious to us, Father, even though we deserve none of it. We only deserve your wrath, and yet we've gotten your Son. Lord, we only deserve your contempt, and instead we've gotten your love that you have made a steadfast love through Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. And all the stuff we've talked about and some of the heaviness of all of it, Father, I pray that you would just cut through it. That, Lord, the things that we need to know and remember, you will let land and all the just extra stuff would fall away so that your name would be praised, Lord. Please lead us in this time. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.